Let's pray, and we'll talk about this fun one. Lord, we thank you uh, for interesting passages like this. Uh, we thank you for the complexity that we have living in, in our day and age, and our culture, um, and reading about submission and government and wondering what, what are we supposed to do now. And so, God, we uh, give this time to you. Would your spirit be moving in, in us and through us uh, as, as, as we discuss this? In your name we pray. Amen. Whoa, the light's turned on. Right as I finish prayer, it's like, whoa, great. So I was telling Tony over here, he moved, he's out getting donuts now, he'll be back, he's playing drums. Uh, When he comes in, we'll say hi. Uh, I was telling Tony over here, it's this passage, and then the submission to your husband's passage, that whenever they come up, it's just like, oh, man. And to be honest, in the mind of a pastor, it's not that we're afraid of what the Bible says. It's just that sometimes, given the cultural situations and what's going on in our, in our lives, in our round, in our political environment of the day, certain passages have certain uh, tempers that go along with it. And this passage especially has been uh, used like the submission passage in Ephesians 5 very irresponsibly. Uh, what Paul is saying here is not some of the ways that we have interpreted it being uh, Americans uh, uh, living over here under our government. We've kind of twisted it, and a lot of governments have been twisting it since about 500 AD. In fact, even before that, we've been twisting this passage. And so today we come to it, and we're trying, and trying to figure out what, what on earth is going on here. What was Paul talking about when he talks about politics. Remember last week, Paul is going into two major divisive issues. Last week he was talking about gifts of the Spirit. This week he's talking about politics. Two things you don't talk about, religion, politics. Those things make people fight. And so he's writing a book that's about unity. And he steers his car almost off the cliff and says, I'm going to talk about the two biggest things that's going to cause division in your church. Our roles together and then how we live in our society uh, politically together. And so there's a lot that Paul's talking about. And so here, either we've fallen into two reactions. You hear this, politics, great. Why did I get up for this, right? I don't want to be a part of this. I don't, I'm sick of politics. I'm sick of government stuff. I just want to ignore it and wake up and have it all be gone. So some of us are over there. Others of us are on the other side where we get fired up about this. Like, yes, politics, you're ready to go. You're, it lights your holy fire. This is your calling. And so we sit on both sides, and maybe there's a third that are like, yeah, I don't care. And, and I don't care about any of this. I, I don't even vote, and that's fine. This is just bleh. I don't know. And so we find ourselves in one of those camps. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to talk about it. We're not going to avoid it. We're going to look at politics. There was a Barna poll that went out a while ago that said that the people took this survey, said that they wish the church would talk more about politics than it does already. And everyone goes, really? This is that, it was shocking. So let's talk about it. Today we're going to have this. This is our question. How do we live as Jesus people in the political society like ours? And this is what Paul was getting at. How do we live as Jesus people in a political society like ours, a political environment like ours? There's three things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the government idolatry. It's the first one. Then we're going to talk about the problem with politics, and then what do we do now? Got it? Okay. We're going to cover a lot in a short period. 
So hang on, it'll be, we're going to go all the way back to 1 Samuel. So hold on, there's a lot here. Uh, and and maybe, maybe it'll make sense at the end of it. And the goal when you talk about politics in a church is you want to equally offend all sides. That's when you know you, are, you have done it right. So here we go. If we turn your Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, many people will look at this passage and they'll say that God is pro-government, that God loves government, and government teachers are like, yes, that's what he is. But when you look in Samuel 8, you get a very different look at this. It'll be on the screen behind me when it's time. Don't put it up there, Craig. What's happening, or go ahead. Uh, what's happening at this point, uh, Israel, the nation of Israel was being governed by the high priest Samuel. Samuel was doing a great job. His sons, however, were not following in dad's footsteps. And so the people around Samuel and all the leaders of Israel got together and said, we want to be like other nations. We want to have a king. And Samuel goes, I don't think you do. We do. You don't understand what this means if you have a king. They were governed by God. Yes, they had judges to institute order and, and rules and, and how we lived. But their ultimate governor, their ultimate leader was God through the high priest Samuel. The people came to him and said, we would like a king. And so in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to what the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as a king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now, listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what a king what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Essentially, what, what God's saying to Samuel right then is they want a king, let them know what they're in for. Give them what they're wanting. They want a king, give it to them. They've been doing this since Egypt, let them have what they want. And, so he, and then Samuel goes back and he gives them this word. And uh, this is the ramifications of what a king would look like. Samuel told them the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And others will plow the ground and reap his harvest. And still others will make weapons of war and equipment for the chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the very best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to the officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and make yourselves become slaves and you yourselves will become slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And the people responded, cool, give us a king. Are you kidding? They wanted this so badly. After that warning, would you ever want a king like that? No, that's not something that God had wanted for them. They, we can argue that, the, that from the starting line, God's like, I don't think you want this kind of government over you. I don't think you want to be servants to the government. God wasn't a big fan of government. It wasn't his idea of how to lead Israel, but it seemed like they always went against his ideals 
And so he just went with it. God saw it as a form of this, political idolatry. They began to worship a king and put their hope in a king rather than they putting their hope in God. The king became the center of their universe, their idol. They worshipped him. They gave him everything. And it slowly, it started with Saul, then it went to David, then Solomon, and then Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And the kings gradually began to live into the prophecy here. And it took Israel down the wrong path. It was idolatry for them. So much so that if you skip over some more passages having to do with government, because we don't want to be here all day, passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Psalms, you get to Jesus. Jesus lived in a very political time. It was Rome was in charge. There was a man named Tiberius there. Tiberius wasn't a nice king. He kind of came up with this idea called crucifixion to anybody who disagreed with him. And if you disagreed with the king, you'd be hanging on the street corner soon. This is the political environment that Jesus walks into. Jesus walking around, Jerusalem has been sacked and they are, they are controlled by Rome. And then the people want to get Jesus' opinion about politics. We today would love to have Jesus' opinion about politics. But I think he would have the same answer. The Pharisees and the Sadducees come to him and they want to trap him. And they say, Jesus, tell us. What is your opinion? This is in Matthew 22. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Rome had about 12 different taxes. The imperial tax was just one of them. And so they're trying to trap him. And Jesus says in verse 19, Show me a coin that's used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, Whose image is on this coin? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then they said to him, then he said to them, give it back to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And give to God what is God's. Now Christians look at this and think, oh, this gives us perfectly enough right and privilege that we can be involved fully in government and our allegiance can be to Caesar because you give to Caesar what's Caesar. But there's some twist in this passage that if just a reading you, we miss. The word image that's used there. If you trace it back, goes all the way back to Exodus, it's the word idol. So Jesus is saying, whose idol is on this coin? And they say, Caesar. Jesus is pulling out again that they've fallen into this idolatry of politics, this idolatry of government. In Exodus 24, here's the command that, that it was breaking. You shall not make an, an image, make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or above the earth or beneath the waters below. Jesus sees the core image of what, or the core problem of what they're asking him. Not a governmental, not a civic problem, but a thing with idolatry. The people of that day and said, why or how do, we, how do we worship Caesar is what they're asking. Who do we worship here? And Jesus says, whose image is on this? And the image of Caesar, if it belongs to Caesar, give it back to Caesar. The implication that Jesus is making is, what image do you bear? The image that's on your heart, who does that belong to? Not just the coin, but whose image are you made of? It's going back to made in the image of God. He's testing the loyalties that we have towards our government. The concerning principle is not in Jesus' answer. The concerning principle is the question that his answer breaks, brings up. Made in God's image. If we are made in God's image, then we should wholly belong to him. 
and give our lives to him. Jesus was suggesting that the preoccupation that the people had with Caesar and Caesar's taxes reflects a heart that is preoccupied with what should be done with something that is already God's. Jesus wasn't avoiding politics, and he wasn't affirming politics either. He was offering an alternative way of doing life and being transformed into God's image rather than being transformed into Caesar's. This raises a whole issues for us today because we have a battle over our image, about our politics. Who are we becoming more and more like? And we've fallen into this idolatry. Sad to say, but we've allowed our political parties in many ways to do a better job at discipling us than we've allowed Jesus to disciple us. This is evident when we hear this. I grew up hearing this. I can't believe that person voted for so-and-so and they're still a Christian. How many of you have said that? I can't believe this person voted Republican or conservative and they're a Christian. And it goes the other way. I can't believe they voted Democrat and they're being a Christian. Or I can't believe they voted third party, just so we get everybody involved. How do they do that and they're still a Christian? We've allowed our political parties to base our or to build our identity more than we've allowed our discipleship with Jesus to build our identity. Discipleship means becoming more and more like Jesus, to be made in his image, to be covered in what he walks in, to study him, to become more and more like him. And we've replaced following Jesus, sadly, with this idolatry of politics that we become more and more like our parties, then we become more and more like Christ. We've allowed our political identity to take over our identity in Christ. We've allowed our politics to replace our theology, and we've allowed our voting our political parties, and our allegiance to the kingdoms of this place replace the ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God. And trying to think of an illustration to make this more real, but you don't really have to go very far. It's the air we breathe, and we hardly even notice it. It surrounds us. It pulls us to the extremes. It woos and steals us. All at the same time, it can draw a wedge in the middle of the church. And it divides the body of Christ. And we don't even notice it sometimes. Paul's writing this letter to build unity. And he goes right after the main thing that that will divide us. Your allegiance. Who you worship. Who you follow. And the question that he asks is, do you follow your political party? Or do you follow Christ? Is your image being made more and more into Christ? Or is it being made more and more into whoever's running, whoever's in office, whoever's where? Where's your allegiance lie? And that's the ultimate question that Paul is asking. It's an idolatry problem. Who do you worship? Who you worship is who you'll become. Who do you worship? Who do you spend the most time reading? Who do you spend the most time thinking about? And you'll slowly become like that person. It's an idolatry of, idolatry of government, idolatry of politics, but it presents to us a, par, a problem. We have a political problem when we look at scriptures and Paul goes along with it. So with the idolatry and now we're sitting in a problem Paul and Jesus represent another way. Jesus says, give to Caesar what Caesar. Paul is getting at this, get along with each other. And that includes getting along with the government. We come to Romans 13, we need to remember that government for Paul was was unbelievably and very political. However, the way we define politics and the way we look at politics was vastly different for Paul than it is for us. 
Our feelings about politics are shaped by 24-hour news cycle, the two-party binary system, cable news, social media, and it's all seemingly tasked to get us to choose a side. Uh, uh, there's a joke going around. There's a, a, a guy comes into work and says, hey, how you doing, to his friend, and his friend goes, I don't know, I haven't checked Facebook yet to let me know how I'm supposed to think. We've allowed things to shift us and pull us and inform us rather than it creates a problem in how we get along with each other. So when Paul talks about this, he's being very political, but we can't read into this Democrat, Republican, Socialist, Libertarian, or whatever. He's not talking about a special interest group. For Paul, he's talking about these definitions, but the main point in the context that he sits in is how do we get along with each other now? The definition for politic in Paul's day was the idea of ordering our lives together. It's the way in which we exercise authority and structure throughout human culture. It's our social relationships, how we deal with economic exchange, labels of human interaction. This was something that that has been working and something that we've been trying to figure out since the beginning of time, and Paul is talking about it here. The word politics comes from uh, this idea of polis, Apollos is the Greek term that meant ancient cities. We think of it as like metropolis, a metropolis, or metropolitan. It's a group of people that come together, and polis and politic was how those group of people get along together. For Paul, that's politics. How a group of people live together socially, economically, and so on. Politics is the practical outworking of the ordering of our lives. If that's all we mean by politics and that's all we mean by political, we can already see that Paul's message, not just here in Romans, but everywhere else, was sharply political. He proclaimed the lordship of Jesus and hope in Jesus over everything. And it wasn't just a spiritual side, a spiritual life, and forgiveness of sins. It was, if you were a follower of Jesus, Jesus was your king, and Caesar was not. Your hope wasn't in the government of the day. Your hope was in Christ. The social relationships we have, the domestic relationships we have, the economic relationships we have, how we relate to each other, all should be ordered and shaped not by what government says, but by what Christ says. There wasn't this public and private dichotomy of life, or how we would say it, there wasn't a church life, a spiritual life, and then a public life or secular life. It was life, and all of it was shaped by Christ. It was doing life together by shaped and the hope of Christ. The people of the church were then tasked to create an alternative polis, an alternative working with each other under the reign and rule of Christ. He wasn't concerned so much with the polis Outside, In fact, he says in Corinthians, I, I save my sharpest words and my sharpest instruction for those who are inside the polis of the church, the church that groups, that comes together, the, 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 the way that the church interacts together. He says the people outside of that, whatever, what do you expect from them? But if you follow Jesus, then our sharpest words come to you. He says that, that the resurrected, our lives should be brought together and rearranged under the resurrected Christ and powered by his Holy Spirit. The church then is, the, is a group of people, a body that is defined by the politic of Jesus. This way, our hope isn't based in the political leaders of our day, who's in office, who's, in, who's running, who's not. 
but our hope is centered on Christ. This is the problem that Paul has with politics. So when Paul's letters like this, they're not a bunch of instructions to the church on how to behave or how to vote. They are actually Paul's attempt to re-disciple people to the image of Christ instead of the greater polis that's surrounding them. How many of you have seen the movie Inception? Yeah? The dream within a dream? Paul is doing a, a political inception. You have an empire. And within the empire, within the polis of the empire, is a tinier polis that lives in the underbelly of the empire that is, is living the way of Jesus. He's pulling in this inception there. And the loyalties aren't to the state. The loyalties are in Christ. It's marked not by loyalty to a party or a president, a senator, mayor, governor, whoever has you. It's allegiance wholly to Christ. So Paul writes this, and he, in all of his writings, if you look at it in this lens, he is sharply political, questioning where people's allegiances lie. He writes a letter to Philippians. Philippi was a place where retired military would retire and live. It was sort of like the Palm Springs of the day for the military folks. They would live there. They would, they would soak it up. It was a very affluent town, very fiercely loyal to Rome. Paul writes this to them. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. That the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We read that and go, sweet, that's exactly what we believe. People in Philippi would read that a little differently. They would read, instead of Christ, they would read Caesar. In fact, this was a hymn written about Nero. And then you see this, and Paul says, no, 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 Caesar, Nero isn't Lord, Christ is Lord. And he's writing this to some people who are fiercely devoted to Rome. And he's switching it up saying, it's not Rome anymore, guys. You're not bound to them. You're bound to Christ. Caesar is just Caesar. Jesus is Lord. And not every knee will bow to Caesar like you say. Every knee will bow to Christ. He's, he's, he's reshaping their discipleship to be more and more like Jesus. And then he says it towards the end of the book in, in Philippians 3. 20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you see how this could be taken? Our citizenship for them is in Rome, and that's what gave them hope. Whenever we we would get in trouble, we would say, we are Roman citizens, therefore we should be treated this way. And he goes, no, 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 that's not your hope. That's not your citizenship. Your primary citizenship belongs in heaven, and your hope comes from Christ. We don't eagerly await the Lord Caesar. We eagerly await the coming of Christ. And Paul is reshaping them to say, no, 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 no. Our allegiance is somewhere else. Our discipleship is elsewhere. So he's giving them, he's exposing to them the problem that we have with our allegiance. And it's a problem that we have too. We will say that I'm a fill-in-your-party-line Christian before we will say I'm a Christian who happens to agree with this party line. We switched our allegiances. What we say first is usually what's closest to our heart. And it happens on both sides. I've fallen into it. I grew up in a home that fell into it. My family members are still sort of this way. It's all around us. And until we start peeking our ears up to notice it, we won't. Because it's like the air we breathe. And how many times have you thought about the air you're breathing today? It's just a way of our lives. 
so we don't see our allegiances are being fought over. Paul says in Philippians that we don't battle this norm, this, this things that we see with our hands. We're actually in a battle over the principalities and the powers of the earth. And one of the ways that Satan uses those principalities is to get your allegiance on something other than Christ. And today, because of our political environment, we are very susceptible to that attack because we are polarized. And it can very easily divide a church. A friend of mine's church back in the Midwest went through a series for a while and they wouldn't choose a side, wouldn't choose a party, wouldn't endorse, wouldn't teach Jesus a certain way. And he lost 1,500 people from his church. He said, I'm an expert in shrinking churches. I should write a book. And he did. (laughs) How to Shrink Your Church. No, it was called something else. But it divides the church. It divides the body of Christ. And we start labeling people as who they vote for, what they vote for, what they stand for, rather than whose image is on their heart. And it creates a problem for us. So Paul is trying to get them to do a new way of life. And we come to Romans 13. And he gets to this passage. Leading up to this passage, he's talked about all of God's mercies, everything that God has done. In Romans 12, he says, Therefore, renew your minds, offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Then he says, you're all gifted. You've been empowered by the Spirit. The gifts are still active today. We talked about it last week. The Spirit prods, the Spirit gifts. The Spirit is in you, using you. You have a gift. And then he goes into this part where he stops and says, then because of the gift, we should love one another. This is how we get along. He's creating this polis. And then he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established from God. And if I'm reading that, I go, wait a minute. How does this work? This passage, we said it before, has been twisted by every government to make themselves ordained by God. We use it uh, as a war cry. Augustine used it to make a just war theory pop and make it work and make it acceptable. Uh, Constantine used it. Everybody seems to use it. In America, we'll say this, that God has established America as the government, and we forget that there's other nations, and if God established the government of America, we, we, we fail to reason that he also established the government of North Korea, and then the government of Venezuela and Russia, and we start making sides and politics, and it divides us. Because that word established doesn't mean what we think it means. It's the word tasso. There's a man by the name of John Howard Yoder, uh, awesome name, and, and he wrote this book called The Politics of Jesus, and he talks about this. He says the word tasso there doesn't, shouldn't be translated established. It rather should be translated order. As in, when you take a book to the library, how many of you ever went to a library once or twice? When you take a book to the library, the librarian takes it back and then puts it in order, files it away. You can give the librarian something that the librarian absolutely detests. And what does the librarian do? Looks at the Dewey Decimal System. How many remember that? And then puts it in the right shelf. That's what Paul is saying. God has ordered the government and he knows where they go. He files them. He takes notice of who's where and what's there. And when it comes to using them, he'll use them but they're not really his idea. If you go back to Samuel, he'd rather you report your allegiance wholly to him 
rather than to a government. When we mistranslate this passage, we get things like apartheid in South Africa. If we mistranslate this passage, we empower people like Hitler, Stalin, the Khmer Rouge, name, fill in the blank for any kind of leader, Saddam, and we think that God has put them in charge. It's not what it's saying, and that's not what God has done here. That's not what Paul is getting at. God orders them. He puts them where they go. He lines them up. He organizes them. He doesn't raise them and put them there to cause them to do the atrocities. To fully understand what Paul is talking about when he talks about the government, you have to look at the way he's built up to this. How do we get along with each other? In Romans 12, he goes into it. uh, He says, don't repay evil for evil. This is how a community, this is the polis. Uh, Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if if your enemy's hungry, feed them. Thirsty, give them a drink. In doing so, you will reap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just in that statement, he's setting up something counter to the government that's at play right now. He's saying, this is what Rome does. And I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to love your neighbor instead of ostracize them. I'm going to ask you when it comes to obeying God's laws, you obey God's laws, even if that means breaking Caesar's. But when it comes to laws that you can obey, obey the law. Obey it. If it doesn't conflict with God's, obey the law. Because if you don't, Nero's a bad man and he's going to come at you. Paul knew about this. Paul eventually would be put to death by Nero. Why? For breaking the law. But he broke the law where it was God's law that he was obeying. There's some laws that we, we resist. When the law contradicts what, what God says, we resist it. When the law doesn't, we obey it. Speed limits. I wish God said we didn't have to obey the speed limit because I like to go fast. I don't like to use my blinker. I just like to keep people in suspense. But it's a law, and it's made for the common good. We have laws, don't steal, don't murder, don't do these things. Those are common good laws, but then there's laws that come up that get voted on and passed where we can look at our scripture and go, "Uh uh-uh. And when it comes to that, where does our allegiance lie? We would say that because it's the government, then we have to do it. Then government would trump God's. No, No pun intended with the word trump, I'm sorry. I tried to get through without using his name. Uh, But we have this idea that because it's written into law, it is then okay for Christians to do. That's not necessarily the case. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. There are times to resist. There are times to break. There are times to go against what what, what the law is written and follow what God says. But the thing is that we must seek to embody the reign of Christ first. Administrations and laws come and go like the tides. And if our hope and our allegiance is in those administrations, our hope and allegiance shift just as quickly as those sands. But to be a com- we are called to be a community who is defined by Christ, growing every day into, our, into his image. 
Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And the core message of the gospel, what makes it the good news, is that God offers a path of human flourishing, and Jesus calls it an abundant life. This is what we are called to align to. And we must seek to embody that reign. This means repenting, some of us, from our addiction to politics as a solution. It means seeking together to embody what Christ looks like and to have that reign in our lives. It means our families and our church are aligned to what God has said so that we can serve what is our city, what is our greater polis, to the notion of what it actually means to be a Christian. We are called to be salt and light in the realm that needs some light and some saltiness. And when we do this, when we have our allegiance to Christ, we will grow exactly into that. And people will look at us and go, they're weird, that's okay. We're of a different party, we're of a different polis than they are. We're of the polis of Jesus. And we follow and become more and more like him. It makes it harder, but that's what we signed up for. We can do it. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that our identity... Our pride, our allegiance is first and foremost to what you say. That we are citizens of your kingdom and that we seek your kingdom first. Your laws, your way first. God, would you give us the strength to do that? Would you give us the patience to bite our tongues when we're tempted to jump into the political pit of our day? Would you give us the the strength rather to jump in and continue the argument, but would you give us the strength to not do that and instead point to you? That though these kingdoms come around us, they'll leave, but you'll stay the same. May we not fall into idolatry, but may we come to the new life that is in you. May we enjoy the tension. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kingdoms come.